Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 977. To begin this week's show, Jason Stark of The Athletic returns to the podcast to join Jay Jaffe in remembering the late, great Roger Angel, who passed away a few weeks ago at the age of 101. Both Jay and Jason have many wonderful memories of Angel, and they share how his work touched them personally and inspired them as writers. We hear about things like Angel's great writing on Dan Quisenberry and Steve Blass, Jason having to deliver the news of Angel's passing live on TV, the many lessons learned from his great work, and Jason's unforgettable evening with the legend. There was my stuff, and sitting to the left of me was Roger Angel. And there to the right of me was Peter Kamitz. Hmm. Now, Peter, I knew, and you know, we'd spent a lot of time talking about baseball and watching baseball together, but it was always a treat for me to be at the same game as Peter Gammons. But I had never been in the presence of Roger Angel before. And so to introduce myself and to spend the night talking about baseball with those two guys was unforgettable. Uh, I have no idea what happened in that game. I don't remember the story that I was there writing. I have no recollection of that. But I'll never forget the experience of watching a game with two of my biggest heroes. In the second half of the show, David Lorelo welcomes Aaron Goldsmith, broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners. We hear about Aaron's growing up a Royals fan and his adventurous journey to a major league job, including a number of indie and minor league stops along the way, and how his history degree has been helpful. Aaron and David then talk about the struggling Seattle Mariners, who have plenty of players to be excited about despite their struggles. We hear about talents like Jared Kelnick, George Kirby, Logan Gilbert, and of course, Julio Rodriguez. There was no idea really what he would look like in center field. He was a corner guy in the minors. No one thought that he could be as fast as he is. I was talking to one of our analysts, Jesse Smith, who's a senior director of baseball analytics for the Mariners, and he was just shaking his head the other day. He was almost kicking himself, saying, I can't believe we didn't realize how fast Julio is. You know, the guys who pour over all the numbers didn't know how fast he was. And I said this to Jerry DePoto, and Jerry said, nobody knew because he got faster. He's improved his speed while getting bigger each of the last two winters, which who does that? I mean, that just doesn't happen at this level. The speed goes, the strength develops, and you mash. And that's what guys do when they get big. But Julio has been able to mash while also getting faster. He's a freak, man. He's a total freak. And it's been a blast to watch the first two months of his big league career. But before we get to these segments, I must issue you my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. And this reminder is even more exciting than usual. We have a ton of new shirts over at Breaking Tea, and you must check them out. There are some great new Fangraphs logo tees, as well as some inspired by our sibling podcast, Effectively Wild, which is celebrating its 10-year anniversary. All of these shirts were designed by our very own Luke Hooper, and just like when you get yourself an ad-free membership, your purchase directly supports Fangraphs and helps us to keep doing everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. For Fangraphs Audio, this is Jay Jaffe. Roger Angel passed away on May 20th at the ripe old age of 101 years old. The longtime New Yorker fiction editor didn't start writing about baseball until he was 40 years old in 1962, but he put together a remarkable 56-year career via his eloquent essays about the action on the field and, in a masterstroke that set him apart from nearly every other writer until the 21st century blogging era, in the stands. 
His work was so widely admired within the industry that in December 2013, the Baseball Writers Association of America voted to give Angel the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, the honor that confers recognition at the Baseball Hall of Fame. It was a precedent-breaking win, for Angel is to date the only winner of the award, renamed in 2021 to the BBWAA Career Excellence Award, to have never been a member of the organization. Angel had a remarkable impact upon me, as my grandfather sent me a dog-eared paperback copy of his first book, The Summer Game, when I was nine or ten years old. I have lost count of the number of times I've reread it and its follow-ups, particularly five seasons. His books gave me a greater appreciation of the decades Angel witnessed before I was born, and instilled within me an understanding of baseball writing that went far beyond the pallid, kid-targeted biographies I was reading. When I first began blogging in 2001, I tried Angel's man-in-the-seats point of view as one of the many tools in my arsenal, though as Joe Pizdansky wrote recently, one thing that you quickly learn when you start writing about baseball is that you can't write like Roger Angel no matter how hard you try. When I got married in 2015, my wife and I had a friend read a passage from Five Seasons on the 1975 World Series called Agincourt and After about what it means to care about baseball. Amid the numerous tributes from industry heavyweights in the days following Angel's death, I wrote my own tribute here at Fangraphs, where I began with the premise that there's a solid chance that Angel was your favorite baseball writer's favorite baseball writer. Earlier this week, I had a chance to talk about Angel with one of my other all-time favorites. Joining me now is Jason Stark of The Athletic, a legend in the field himself. Where Angel won what was then called the Spink Award, now the BBWAA Career Excellence Award, for 2014, Jason won it for 2019. Welcome, Jason. Hello, Jay. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to finally have you on here. I know that for all the conversations we've had off air, I think this is the first podcast we've done together. And I, I know we've done TV at least once or twice, but uh, not many times. So uh, this is uh, it's always great to do something with you. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. So I saw what you said on MLB Network, and I'll get to that shortly, you know, with regards to the news of, of Angel's passing. But I wanted to back up a bit and, and get some background from you here. When did you first encounter Roger Angel's writing? It's a really good question. I, you know, I would say I would say it's when I was in college. And, you know, at that point, uh, I was I was at Syracuse University trying to follow a dream. Seriously, I had a lifelong dream since the time I was 10 years old, old enough to dream about doing anything, to be a sports writer. But, you know, when I got to college, I wasn't sure if maybe I should do something more serious. Jay, you know, cover news and right. try to change the world in some way. But I never, I never lost that passion, never lost that dream of writing about sports and that it was at that point that I started reading the Roger Angel books. And you know, I can tell you that Roger Angel was one of my inspirations, uh, one of the reasons that I, I knew I wanted to become a baseball writer, not just a writer, not just a sports writer, but a baseball writer, because I started reading Roger as I was falling in love with baseball writing. You know, he was a huge influence on me because he was one of the first sports writers I ever read who taught me that we're not just writing about sports here. You're not just writing about games. You're writing about so much more. And that was every Roger Angel piece, right? It was about so much more. Right. 
Yeah, I, you know, he's he wrote about people. I mean, he wrote about yeah. what it was to be a man in the seats, watching whatever it was go down, and and providing that sort of social and historic perspective, especially when it came, you know, to to his point of entry with the Mets in 1962 at the start of the, the summer game, which was my my point of entry into into uh, his work. My grandfather gave me a beat up copy that he'd rescued from some flea market when I was about ten years old. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I was already a baseball nut then, and uh, I think it was that and ball four were, were might have been in the same box. I mean, the, that, that's that's the, that's the, that's the story I tell. We nobody's nobody could verify that, and uh, as John Thorne would say, it's too good to check. <laughs> but, hey, I'm right there with you. Uh, you and me both. Like those those two books were game changers for me uh-huh. in my career path. I don't think there's any doubt about it because they were both about more than just baseball. They really were about humans and the journey and how baseball frames that journey. You know, I think it was a realization for me, especially reading those early Roger Angel works. What makes people care about sports and care about baseball is that human beings are involved and we see ourselves through the prism of those human beings. And one of the pieces by Roger that I vividly remember is the profile of Steve Blass after he right. lost the ability to throw a baseball where he was trying to throw it. Uh, I actually reread that piece after he died. And in it, he writes about how watching these games can evoke something deeper in us. That's not a sentence that you read in very much baseball writing, but so true. That was a piece that was not about how Steve Blass had to try to fix his mechanics or how he tried to go about the act of figuring out how to throw strikes again. It was about a real person trying to understand why he could no longer do that thing that he'd always done, that he'd always loved doing, that he'd always done better than just about anyone around him. It's a really odd experience that I don't know that anyone other than athletes ever really experience. And so that's why it was so riveting, I think, uh, how he handled it, how he went about wrestling with it, how he coped with it after he knew he could no longer do that thing anymore, but it was still in there and it was still a part of him and he was still coaching his kids and he was still running into people all the time who wanted to talk to him about it, how he talked to his wife about it. And th- th- like this went on for years after he got out of the game. And, you know, again, Jay, it's such a reminder. This was about the life journey, not the baseball journey. And that's what Roger Angel could capture better than just about anyone that I had ever read, especially early on, as I was trying to figure out what did I want to do? What did I want to be? If I wanted to write about this thing called baseball, how did I want to do that? It's interesting that you mentioned the blast piece. I haven't gone back and reread it myself, but uh, Emma, my wife, Emma Spann, who was the managing editor at uh, The Athletic and edited Jason uh, and is now uh, the enterprise editor, cited the same piece. And she had a bit of a different take on it. I mean, I think, you know, she didn't give me so many words about it. And I don't know that she'd actually had a chance <laughs> to sit down and, re- and read it, you know, with the same immediate eye for detail as as you did. But she talked about the anxiety spiral of you know what happens when you when you can do 
something and, uh, you know, as that you've been doing for, you know, your whole life or, you know, for your professional career or whatever. And, and we had this discussion, you know, that didn't, didn't make it into the companion piece, but, you know, it was about, you know, the, the way that anxiety affects writing. And, you know, when you're standing, you know, when you're sitting there, you know, staring at the blinking cursor or the blank page and, and, you know, you've done this a hundred times, a thousand times, you know, under similar circumstances, but on this particular occasion, the words aren't coming. I actually experienced that when I set out to write my own angel tribute there for, you know, for, for one evening. I realized I was yeah. just, you know, on fumes, you know, hadn't gotten enough sleep. But but <laughs> I, I think there's a there is a relatable element, uh, you know, in that in that blast piece and in, in, in what you're saying and what Emma's saying of just that, like, yeah, that that anxiety of like, I, you know, we all, you know, have something we're good at and we know how to do it. But what happens you know, it's one thing when you have a bad day and you just, you can't do it that day and you can't figure out why. It's another thing when it just, that slips away from you. And, it, you know, the the way he, the way he wrote that piece and it really does stick with you, the, the larger, you know, human drama of it. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. Outside of athletes and writers and artists, I guess, who, who else experiences that, that feeling where suddenly you just can't do the thing that you've always loved to do? You know that you that you're yeah. that you're yeah, pretty just, sure that you're the best at doing, <laughs> you know. And yeah. uh, I'm not a big writer's block sufferer. I'm lucky in that respect. Right. Uh, some days are easier than others, but I've been in press boxes with my fellow writers who experienced intense bouts of writer's block, and seen it and watched it close up. And it's really, a, it, it's almost a terrifying thing to behold when you see somebody who yes. is really in the throes of it. And it really has made me think about athletes who suddenly have it, who have been great at something all their lives. You, you see it a lot in baseball now because there's so much information and players get to the big leagues because they have a certain talent and a certain way they've always done things. And then... They arrive in the big leagues and everybody has all the information on what makes them good, but also the things, the areas where they're most vulnerable. And then the way they've always done it isn't good enough. And now they have to cope with that realization. It's so hard on the human level. You know, I don't, maybe I would have thought about all these things if I hadn't read Roger Angel, but he left such a powerful mark on me because I did. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put. It. I mean, just you know, so different from from everything. You know, I guess we'll we'll I'll get back to what I was where I was going with this. But I was struck, you know, when you said what you said on the air, and, and then just now, you know, about Roger Angel being one of the reasons you wanted to be a baseball writer. I think I found out that Roger Angel passed away from seeing that that clip of you on the air on MLB Tonight with Brian Kenny talking eloquently about Roger Angel passing away at age 101. Did you actually find out about his death when you were on the air or did you had you had any chance to prepare for that? That was quite an experience to be sitting in a studio. It's live national television. And during a break, I had my iPad sitting there with me on the right. set. And when I opened it, I saw some tweets from people I follow about the greatness of Roger Angel. And I said, oh no, did Roger Angel die? And so the producer in my ear said, yes, you know, it's just being reported now. When we get back from this break, we would like you to talk about it. Oh boy. So yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about a couple of minutes 
at the most to think through, what do I want to say about a legend on live TV? I mean, Jay, doing TV, doing live TV is an experience no matter what you're talking yes. about. But in that moment, that was really powerful. It was really hard. And people have told me that it came out great, but I don't know exactly how. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, it just came out. You, it came you, from you, you came you came through in the clutch, and I think we're all we're all we're we're all proud of it. Um, <laughs> Thank I you. Linked, you know, and I quoted you in my piece here, and I'll I'll read the excerpt here into the into the record of the podcast. Roger Angel is one of the reasons I wanted to be a baseball writer. Baseball writer doesn't even really describe him. Baseball poet, baseball thinker too. The way he thought about the sport was different from everybody else. And when you read Roger Angel, you learned something and you got spellbound by the way he could write it, the way he could put words together and put thoughts together. He was a true legend. I thought that was great. I thought that that touched the basis of, you know, what set him apart. And it's very different from the job that you you know, the, the way that you have come to the position you now occupy and the way that most baseball writers, you know, coming up as a beat reporter and then becoming a national columnist for you, it was at the Philadelphia Inquirer and then on to ESPN where you, you wrote there uh, for a national audience and got to do television. And now you're doing similar for the athletic and MLB network. Did you ever wish you could just focus on like a few big pieces a year, like, like <laughs> Angel, instead of like having to hit, you know, a daily or, or multiple times a week deadline? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question because, as you know, I, when I write, it's often quite voluminous. And it, I, I'm I getting do, to that. <laughs> I, do, I do write a lot of pieces that I've worked on for weeks and months. And so there's nothing I enjoy more than those pieces. But I also recognize that the world has a different pace now than it had when Roger Angel was becoming a baseball writer. And I think we all have to be conscious of that pace and the way people get their information, the reading habits that the audience has now. It's just different. So, hey, I grew up dreaming of writing for a living. I didn't ever dream of being on television, being on radio, hosting a podcast, guesting on podcasts being on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and delivering <laughs> all the the news and the tidbits and the stuff 24-7 on all these different platforms. But that's the way we tell stories now. And our audience, there was a time when people learned about baseball by reading about it. How many people idolized Joe DiMaggio and never saw him play? You know, right. the world is so different now. People see everything. They see everyone and they're in a hurry. Or some people love to read the big, chunky pieces that you've worked on for months and others just don't have time for that. So you've got to tell the stories every possible way. So would it be great to be Roger Angel and write a few times a year? Yeah, it'd be awesome. But that, mm -hmm. like those kinds of jobs... I guess they might still exist in a couple of different pockets of the universe, but they're going to become more and more rare. And so I like I like the ability to tell the stories all the different ways. Just part of the fun of the job. Yeah, I think Roger's you know work was very, you know, sentence word by word, sentence by sentence. You could tell there there was some polish there. And he made it look effortless, but you go back and you study it and you're like, man, I would like 
the vocabulary in there. I mean, you know, for a 10 year old reading it, it was eye opening. Like, you know, I had to sit there with it with a, with a pocket dictionary to, to figure out some of the words, but <laughs> I'll tell you what, one thing I was going to say, uh, about length with one thing that you, I know you must have taken from him. And, and I certainly have the courage to file 3000 or 4000 or 5000 <laughs> words at a time. I know this from watching Emma edit yeah, your, your, poor your work, but yours, uh, like you said, it's, it's, it's for a different kind of audience. You know, you're using a lot of data. You're using a, it's, you're, you know, when I read some of your columns, it's like a variety show. It's like, and next we have, you know, uh, <laughs> Three unnamed major league executives talking about this trend, and here's this incredible tidbit that I that, that that I saw and that I'm digging into, and now you know, and now over to this situation with this manager here, and it's 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 very interesting, and it just it bounces around. But you're you're right, the, the work the work has to evolve, the, the the job evolves because of the times we're in, and you know, Angel could deliver his things at a you know at a at a time when people weren't as concerned with round the clock news. And, you know, they already knew the scores and, you know, he wasn't uh, digging for you know, the, the minutiae that, that, that we dig for. He wasn't competing in, the, in, in that realm. And we, you know, we have very different demands. He wasn't going on TV or, or, or worrying about podcasts either. No. You know, let me talk about this for a second, because there wasn't a lot of stats in a Roger Angel piece. Numbers. Right. Oh, you mentioned data. There really wasn't much of that in his, in his sphere, in his his frame of vision. And right. yet the reason he could still be a powerful influence on people like us is a couple of things. One is, he just touched on this. I, I mentioned it on the air, thinking. The way he could take a step back from what he was watching and think about where it fit in the big picture, what it looked like from 30,000 feet. Um, I, you know, I've definitely taken that from him when I do my job now because that view from 30,000 feet is so interesting, man. And, you know, I have a lot of things that I do, Jay, to make myself pay attention to baseball every day. But I keep a daily log of stuff I find interesting. And right. some of it is just, let me dig for this little tidbit stat nugget last time this happened. But some of it is that those 30,000 foot trends that you can see if you take a step back. And Roger always saw them. And so I learned, I think I learned a lot about the art of thinking about baseball writing from reading him. Here's another thing, attention to detail. I, I feel like reading him taught me that attention to detail matters. You know, he's not the only influence uh, that I've had in, in my time taught me that. Uh, certainly reading Peter Gammons taught me that. But I think one of the reasons that I watch and listen so closely during big moments in a big game is because Roger Angel did that. You remember his famous Dan Quisenberry profile? Yeah. You know, like, you know he, would, he would describe Dan Quisenberry entering a game. Right? He hadn't thrown a pitch yet, but he enters the game. He wouldn't walk in. He would trot in. He would start to warm up, had a delivery like no one else in the sport. And when you read this, Roger Angel would describe every motion. And then he would also write about this reaction in the stands of the people around him watching this guy warm up with his really odd delivery. Some of these people watching were actually laughing out loud. This is in the piece. And, you know, you don't get that sort of detail unless you pay attention. So 
I pay close attention because it matters. So when I'm, if I'm covering a World Series game, you know, I force myself to watch when there's a big moment. I don't, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not messing around in the press box. This is when you watch and listen. And I try to, I keep intense, intensive detail about every pitch, what goes on between every pitch, the sound of the, the stadium, the different stuff that people on the field do to relieve the tension in those moments. This is one of the great parts about baseball. You know, those moments hang there in the night. And if this is one of the things that we love about it, we should try to capture it, (laughs) you know? And so Roger Angel did that so well. He did those postseason recaps and it was such a big part of those recaps so I try to do that because I read him doing that. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that that's that's a great observation and great great reminder that you know to some sometimes you got to stop and smell the roses rather than uh, uh, digging for that next little little nugget while while everybody else is uh, uh, watching the flow of the game. It just you know there's just there's so much to absorb. It was interesting. You met, you mentioned Pierre Gammons on the air. You just uh, in that MLB Tonight spot when you yeah. when you learned of it. You you, you described uh, going to going to Toronto where you sat in a press box with with uh, Angel on your left and 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 Peter <laughs> on your right. What what was that like? Yeah, I, you know these are two of the the most important life changing figures in my career arc: Roger Angel and Peter Gammons. And so you know I was covering the Phillies at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then I was graduating to national baseball writer slash baseball columnist. And I proposed some story and I don't really, even, I couldn't even tell you what it was anymore. Uh-huh. But uh, it involved going to Toronto for a Red Sox-Blue Jays game. And so the Blue Jays assigned me a seat in the press box. And I put my stuff there and I went to the clubhouse and did my thing before the game. And then I got back upstairs and... There was my stuff, and sitting to the left of me was Roger Angel. And there to the right of me was Peter Kamitz. Hmm. Now, Peter, I knew, and you know, we'd spent a lot of time talking about baseball and watching baseball together, but it was always a treat for me to be at the same game as Peter Gammons. But I had never been in the presence of Roger Angel before. And so to introduce myself and to spend the night talking about baseball with those two guys was unforgettable. Uh, I have no idea what happened in that game. I don't remember the story that I was there writing. I have no recollection of that. But I'll never forget the experience of watching a game with two of my biggest heroes. And Roger Angel was such a kind, warm, gentle welcoming soul and it was amazing to me that roger angel was interested in what i thought (laughs) wait what what is happening you know it was just a really cool like one of those one of those moments that stays with you it was i I told brian kenny in the in the air it's like if if you were sitting at a game between with hank aaron and willie mays (laughs) this was that equivalent for me that's what these two people were for me in my life. Oh, that's great. Did you have did you have many other uh encounters with with Roger? I wish I'd had more. You know, because I then I 
I met him that day and we then sort of knew each other. You know, Roger Angel came to every postseason, certainly every World Series for many, many years. And so I would see him. I would, you know, we'd have some casual conversation. It was often more in a group than just me and him. But I was just always struck by his love for it. You know, like I pride myself, Jay, on loving what I do. There's nothing that means more to me than people telling me, when I read you, I can see how much you love it. When I see you or hear you, I can see how much you love it. And that's the impression that Roger Angel always left with me. He was a guy who knew how lucky he was to be doing this thing that he didn't even set out to do, right. you know, <laughs> and uh, was very grateful for all that time at a ballpark and every opportunity that he had to write about things that he cared about and loved. Uh, it always shone through. That's great. Well, Jason, I could pick your brain all day about this stuff and ask you favorites of his and 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 and, <laughs> and what and what other writers that you know said about him. But I think probably in the in the interest of keeping this short for the sake of my producer here, <laughs> I'm gonna, I think we're gonna we're going to go. Is there? But I will say, do you have a single favorite piece of his that stands out? I know you mentioned besides, I guess besides the blast piece and 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 the Quisenberry piece. Is there one other piece that you would uh, like to draw our listeners' attention to? Well, I would say. Those two in particular really stuck with me. I had a chance to meet and interview Dan Quisenberry myself and just loved that guy. This is about me. It's not about him. Just give me one second here. But I was once in Baltimore talking to Dan Quisenberry and the clubhouse security guy came up to us and said, hey, I need to close the clubhouse. And Dan Quisenberry looked at me and said, well, if, if you're leaving, I'm going wherever he's going. And so we went out, out the door and we kept talking in, in the hallway. And so I've always had a, a soft spot for, for Dan Quisenberry. Sure. Such a sad story. And, you know, for Roger Angel for telling it so well. But beyond those two, I always loved his recaps of the postseason in The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. They would run every year. It's funny you mentioned that. MLB Tonight Show. Uh, it was me, Brian Kenny, Ruben Morrow Jr. And, you know, in that, in that brief time that we had, Ruben was aware of Roger Angel, didn't really know him. And so Brian and I were talking to him about those postseason pieces, how they'd come out weeks or months after the World Series. And you still had to read every word because there was so much in there nobody else had written about. Nobody else right. had really even noticed. And I said to Ruben, like, here's the thing. Everyone watched those games, so the stuff that was in there, theoretically, we'd all seen it, except you didn't know you'd seen it until you read, you read Roger Angel. Right. Uh, all those weeks later, all those months later. What a gift! What a yes. gift to be able to do that every year. So I, I don't think it would be any one of those pieces in particular, but all of them. And, and one more thing about him is... You know, Roger Angel's career path is different from everyone else who ever won the BBWA Career Excellence Award, formerly the Spink Award, when we both won it. And I give all the credit to Roger winning it to Susan Slusser, who became president of the baseball yeah. writers and said, we need to honor this man because he changed our business. And that's left its mark on me when I go to vote on that award, when I talk to my fellow baseball writers about who should win that award. That's my standard. Who changed our business? 
Right. And Roger Angel never covered baseball for a newspaper, never covered baseball on a daily basis, but he was a life changer, a baseball writing life changer for all of us. And so I'm so glad that he won that award. Yeah, no, I, I wrote I, I wrote a lot about about Susan's efforts and and you know I remember at right. the time being so moved that uh, that she had led the charge to recognize him in that way and you know for me as an outsider myself coming to this I think he opened the door for so many outsiders to get into baseball writing I mean he's forty when he starts writing about the Mets uh, in 1962 I was. 42, I think, when I, 40, maybe 41, when I was first in a major league press box. And, and, uh, so, you know, and, you know, did not come up through the, uh, uh, newspaper <laughs> beat writer system. I mean, I'd written, you know, about music in college and thought I was going to make, you know, a living doing that. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Didn't work out that way and spent, you know, took a 15 year detour into graphic design, uh, before, you know, and then, you know, where I start blogging about baseball as an outsider, never thinking that I'm going to be in the press box. So I, I, I felt like, you know, Roger was, Roger was there representing those of us who did not come to writing about baseball as, uh, you know, as that uh, coming up through the system. He was he was the outsider. He was the the original blogger in some sense too. You know, because he was putting himself into it and his his reactions as a fan. And I just it contains multitudes. I mean, there's so many different ways we can look at this. But I really thank you for for putting into words, you know, your your feelings about him and sharing with us, you know, what what he meant to. You know, one of the, you know, somebody who in his own right is, is is so highly regarded within the field. So, Jason, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad we could finally put this together. I, for those of you listening, I chased Jason all around all last <laughs> week to the point of pestering. But I knew this would be worth waiting for. And so here it is, even, I guess, almost two weeks after, after Roger has passed. I think this is worth sharing with our listeners. So thanks again, Jason, for your time and uh, for sharing your thoughts. Well, Jay, uh, thanks for pestering me. It, it was a privilege to be able to do this with you and to, to talk about Roger because, you know, you and I understand what he's meant to those of us who care about baseball and baseball writing. You know, hopefully now there are people listening. They'll understand what he meant to us and what he meant to our business and what he meant to the sport. So thank you for giving me the forum to do that. All right. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Aaron Goldsmith, radio broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners. Aaron, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Hey, David, you got it, man. Thanks for the invite. And I should thank you actually too, Aaron, for, for your flexibility with the invite too, because you had agreed to come on last week, but I ended up getting covid you know, fortunately, not a serious case. You know, thank you, Pfizer. So I took the week off from my podcast duties. So I guess we are not as uh, a world, not uh, through COVID yet, are we? Well, we're not quite, that's for sure. But I'm glad you're back on your feet. I'm glad your voice is back. And uh, yeah, no problem. Happy to uh, be flexible with it. Well, well worth uh, making the concessions to get you back and healthy. No, thanks, Aaron. And uh, I'm always daunted when I have broadcasters on as guests because you've got the voice. You sound like a broadcaster. I sound like an amateur podcaster. So be nice to me here. Well, you know, it is funny. Anytime anybody ever compliments my voice, it's like complimenting somebody for being tall, right? I mean, I, I did nothing to get it. I do nothing to keep it. 
I just have it. So I'm very grateful to have it. And I'm grateful that I love baseball because those two things happen to pair very well together. Right. So with uh, complimenting people for being tall, when you, I'm sure you saw Will Fleming, you know, Red Sox broadcaster yesterday or a few days ago, I should say, you know, Will is what, six, seven, right? You know, he's enormous. Will Will and I were in the minors. We crossed over in the International League by one year. And our teams didn't play each other much the way that the schedule was, but we met each other and we had lunch and that kind of thing. And then I've only seen him sporadically. And of course, I haven't seen him for the last couple of years because we haven't traveled. So when I saw him the other day at Fenway Park, it was A, it was just great to see Will again because he's a wonderful guy and a great broadcaster. But I was, to your point, David, I I was kind of struck in the hallways there in, in the press box at Fenway. I was thinking... Man, you're enormous. <laughs> you're a lot taller than I remember. But yeah, he's he's got to be pushing six seven. No, I think he is six seven. I think he is cited that on on broadcast. So yeah, let's talk about <laughs> let's let's talk about broadcasting. And you know, Mariners fans, be patient. We're going to get you know the Mariners in a bit. But I want to start with the fact, uh, Aaron, that you have a, a history degree. Are you a baseball history buff? Boy, the second I declare myself a baseball history buff is the second I'm going to fail, that's for sure. Because the more I learn about baseball, the more I realize I don't know anything about baseball. So I would say that I'm as much of a baseball history buff as anybody who loves baseball and makes baseball their life and does this for a living. So I, I probably know more than the average person. But to be honest with you, David, I was in college not having any, and I, I truly mean this, not having any idea or any notion of becoming a broadcaster, let alone a baseball broadcaster, I didn't know that I wanted to get into broadcasting until truly the final two months of my college life. I I was really just weeks away from graduating, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I I, Like a lot of people, I, I had different ideas of what I wanted to do in college and kind of threw one in the trash can and then another and then moved on to the next thing. I just happened to love history. And not to get too much on a, on a history tangent, but I, I w- went to college as a business major and then realized that I hated accounting. I hated finance, all those things. I, I really, I couldn't retain it. It really brought me no joy. I was just doing the work to do the work to get a piece of paper at the end of four years. And I had a talk with my, my college advisor, who was a, a, a business teacher. And I kind of just spilled the beans and I said, I'm not enjoying this. I'm not learning from this. I don't know what I want to do with this. And one thing led to another. And she told me that if she had a person who worked for her in the real world who came to her with a history degree, that she would strongly consider that person to be hired because of the things that you learn studying history. You learn how to think critically. You learn how to write. You learn how to read. You learn how to communicate all with a really critical mind. And the second she said that, I left her office and I said, I'm, I'm, switching, I'm switching majors. I was a junior in college and I've always loved history. I loved it in high school and I switched immediately and it was one of the best decisions I, I ever made, certainly in college, but in, in, my, in my early years in life because all those things that I learned studying history are things that I truly use every day broadcasting baseball. And the easiest pull is just the baseball history side of it. But it really is so much more than that. It's truly just the, the thinking critically that comes along with studying history. is something that I hope I use every inning when I watch and broadcast a baseball game. So it, my path to, to broadcasting Major League Baseball is probably pretty one of a kind. We all have a different path. 
but I, I did no broadcasting in college. I, I got a really late jump on it. So with all that in mind, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to be where I am today. And before we get to your path, Aaron, let me see if I can get you to either pass or fail one baseball history quiz. You grew up in Wichita and St. Louis and were originally a Royals fan. So here's the question. Who has the highest batting average in Kansas City Royals franchise history? Minimum 1,800 plate appearances with the team. I'm guessing it's, it's not George Brett? George Brett is one percentage point behind the answer. Really? George Brett, of course, had far more plate appearances with the Royals. I did the cutoff here at uh, at, at eighteen hundred. That's terrific. All right, you got to tell me who is it. No guesses. No, I'm just let's just cut to the chase here. Okay, uh, Jose Offerman. <laughs> See, this is why this is why I didn't guess at three oh six. No, and Jose <laughs> Offerman, I assume, was probably playing there when you were a kid. Yeah, I was I was born in Wichita, and I moved to Kansas City within a year. So I remember nothing about the glory days of my life in Wichita, Kansas. But I, I grew up in Kansas City and then moved to St. Louis when I was going into seventh grade. So my first ballpark was Kaufman. I, I was grateful to be there in the George Brett, Bo Jackson, Saberhagen days as a, as a young one. But the, the formative years, I would say, of my – I wouldn't have get, gotten that anyway. Let's make it clear. <laughs> but the formative years of my, my sports fandom certainly uh, lie in, in the St. Louis area. Okay, a non-baseball history question for you, Aaron, before we jump to, uh, you know, some Mariner stuff. How much do you know about Dr. Pepper? Well, I did spend two years in Frisco, Texas, where we broadcasted games from, I believe it's been renamed, but at the time it was Dr. Pepper Ballpark. The only thing I know about Dr. Pepper, David, is that there's no period after the R. That's the best you can do? Yeah, that's. I'm. I'm really... <laughs> I'm really ashamed right now. That is the most that I know about Dr. Pepper. I probably knew less than that before I decided to look this up this morning. Uh, Dr. Pepper dates back to the late 1800s and uh, was first produced in Waco, Texas. So Dr. Pepper was originally called Waco. Really? So there is our, uh, you know, our trivia, our non-Jose Offerman trivia for, for the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say I had no idea before I, I moved to Texas for those couple of years how much Texans love their Dr. Pepper. I mean, it's flown through water fountains out there. But I've also spent some time in Waco. I've been to Baylor a number of times in my career. So I think between my esteemed time in Waco, Texas and in Frisco, Texas, and broadcasting to Dr. Pepper Ballpark, I feel like I could stump anybody now on this subject. So thank you for that. You are welcome. Actually, one more uh, non-Mariners thing. We first met, I believe, in Portland, Maine, when you were working for the AA Sea Dogs. We definitely knew each other in your year with AAA Pawtucket in, in 2012. What stands out from that season, Aaron, you know, besides you know, me showing up in the press box from time to time? Well, first of all, to go back to, to Portland, Maine, not that a lot of people really care about this, but that was the best summer of my life, 2009 in the Eastern League with the Portland Sea Dogs. That was to spend a summer in Maine and being in the Red Sox farm system where people, man, they care. They care so much, even at that level. Uh, we were on an actual radio network. The year before, I was broadcasting games in the Cape League over Skype. And to go from that to, now I was an intern, I wasn't the guy, but I felt like the guy, man, compared to where I had been in my career. 
to even just to call three innings for home games only, to be on a radio network that we were in two states over multiple stations. I mean, that just doesn't happen in minor league baseball. Most minor league baseball teams are broadcast internet only nowadays. And, and even back then, that was becoming a thing. So I felt like I was in the big time, for real, uh, calling games for the Sea Dogs. That was just such a wonderful time in my life. I'm so grateful I had that experience. And Mike Antonellis, uh, who has, is now with AAA Worcester, formerly the, the Paw Sox, as they've moved. Uh, Mike was just just a ten out of ten mentor for me. A wonderful person, a tremendous broadcaster, and I just I thank him so much. And the memories that he and I made together that summer, uh, I'll hold on to for a lifetime. You know, Pawtucket was uh, a job that I had kind of circled. My wife is from New England. She's from a town in in Boston, just outside of Boston, called Hingham, Massachusetts. Her grandparents lived on Cape Cod. Uh, she's very entrenched in that area, and the idea of of living full time out there near her family and to broadcast for really what has been the cradle of minor league baseball broadcasting in, in Pawtucket was really just a, a dream and one that I, I did not think I would maybe ever have the shot of, of actually fulfilling, certainly not that early in my career. And when I got that job, it was like, okay, this is, this is, it's on now. I, I might actually have a chance at this because in the minors, you just have, you have no idea if you're good or if you're bad. You have no idea how long you're going to be there for. At certain points, you have no idea if you should continue trying, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And so when I when I got the Pawtucket job, it was a really – I know I said that Portland felt like the big leagues, but it, that felt like the big leagues because of where I, where I had been previously. I'd been in indie ball. I'd been in the Cape League. And so that was uh, my first real taste at, at professional affiliated ball. But when I got the Pawtucket job, that's when I thought, all right, this this is my big leagues because this is as big league as it gets being in minor league baseball. And I, I, I only was there for a year, which is not at all what I anticipated. I, Heather and I had, had talks. My wife and I had talks about, okay, we're going to probably be here for a decade. Let's hunker down. Let's start a family. And we kind of had that ball beginning to get in motion. And we were there for like 11 months, basically. And then we moved to Seattle, started a family, and now have three kids and a house and have set roots and all that good stuff. So uh, Pawtucket was, I loved that ballpark. McCoy Stadium was really a fun place to call games. Fans were there all the time, even through miserable weather, through rain, and what I'm sure was snow early in the season as well. Uh, that was that was a, a really cool experience to be a part of of that organization at that level. And you were only 29 years old, Aaron, when you got hired by the Mariners. You know, I guess that kind of makes you the Theo Epstein or maybe the John Daniels of broadcasting. I think they were. They certainly got a lot of publicity for their age when they became GMs. You were obviously hired because of your talent, but at the same time, just how much luck is involved? You know, there are not that many big league broadcasting jobs. You're absolutely right. It's. I think about it often. And the gentleman who hired me with the Mariners is just recently retired. His name is Randy Adamack. And he had been with the Mariners since almost day one. He'd been, been there since essentially the second season of the organization. The Mariners began in 1977. And there's not a year that goes by where I don't get teary-eyed talking to Randy because Randy changed my life. He changed my family's life. And if Randy didn't hire me, I could easily now be in Worcester 
with the Woosocks instead of in Pawtucket because it could be easy for someone to think, oh, well, you got the Mariners job. So even if they said no to you, the next big league job, you might have gotten that. And yeah, sure, I might have gotten that. But there's a greater chance that I wouldn't have. And it's like scouting. It's like scouting a ball player. How many times do we hear one executive say that they love this one guy and the next executive say, no, we don't like him. He's got a hole in the swing. We don't like his delivery, et cetera, et cetera. And this exact same is true about broadcasters, only there's even less things to grade on <laughs> than there is to grade a ball player. It's just personal taste by and large. So I'm tremendously fortunate because when I go back, David, and I hear my tapes when I was in Frisco or in or in Pawtucket, I wouldn't have hired me <laughs> if I can be perfectly candid. And so I'm really grateful that the Mariners chose me. They could have chosen a hundred other guys, literally, that all would have done the job very well. And I, I could not have, could not be more thankful to have been selected and to be able to, to carve out a career with the Seattle Mariners in, in a great city and start a family there and, and really start, start the, the best times of my life in Seattle. So, Aaron, there is a, a video from early April that I saw for the first time just a few hours ago of Scott Service telling Julio Rodriguez that he had made the club and, and was now a big leaguer. If there were a video of you learning that you were getting that Mariner's job for the first time, what would the video look like? There's actually a picture of me on the phone finding out I got the job. And I have my, my paw socks half zip on. I have the cheapest pair of khaki pants available at the time in New England. And I was in the halls of McCoy Stadium, and I was sitting down on the ground propped up against a wall and just in disbelief. The, you know, one regret I have as uh, someone who loves audio of all forms, and like any broadcaster, I have a really deep archive of, of personal audio from play-by-play -play of me in independent league baseball to the Mariners to interviews with all kinds of people with the Mariners and with other organizations as well. David, if there's one piece of audio that I wish I would have had the foresight to press record on, it's the call that I made to my mom from the stadium parking lot at McCoy Stadium just minutes after finding out that I was hired by the Mariners and telling my mom that I got a big league job because she screamed. <laughs> I mean, she she lost her mind. And I, I get really emotional just thinking about it now because I mean I can remember I can remember being a a journeyman minor league broadcaster and working for three different teams in three different years in three different states, none of which paid me almost anything. I mean, my first job paid me seventy dollars a month. That was an indie ball with the Gateway Grizzlies, a job that I never should have been offered, <laughs> to be frank. My second job with the Born Braves in the Cape League paid me nothing. The Cape League is purely volunteer. It's the only job that got offered to me that year, which is why I drove out to the Cape and, and called a summer's worth of baseball pro bono online over Skype. And my third job as an intern for the Sea Dogs in Portland, Maine, paid me $600 a month. And so I was in the hole, man, like big time. I was walking dogs as a job. I was landscaping as a job. I was an assistant JV head coach for a basketball team. I wasn't, I wasn't a head coach. I was the assistant, not for the varsity, for the JV. <laughs> I mean, just to make a buck, living with friends, sleeping on couches, trying to figure it out. 
all the while knowing, not knowing if I was even any good at this because it's so hard to find feedback. So I almost gave it up, David. I mean, honestly, Heather and I had been dating seriously for four years. We wanted to get married. I didn't have a dollar to my name. I was in debt. And if I hadn't been given a full-time job with the Rangers AA team in Frisco, Texas, going into the 2010 baseball season, I would have quit broadcasting to become an appliance salesman. Honest to goodness. I wanted to start my life. I wanted to get married. I didn't feel like it was right to get married when I was an unemployed fledgling broadcaster who had, not that I didn't have any direction. I certainly had a North Star, but I had no idea how to get there. I had no compass. So with all that in mind, when I got that phone call and when I called my mom and told her and she gave me the reaction that was even better than I had expected. Uh, that, that's a time I'll never forget and a time that I, I really wish I had documented and had the audio of that. But I have it in my in my mind and I have it in my heart forever. And it's a, it's a day I'll never forget. And that is somehow a full decade ago. So we should actually get to the 2022 Mariners finally. On opening day or immediately before, I predicted this team to win the AL West. Now, with the caveat that we are speaking on June 1st, you know, anything is possible. But to this point, it looks like I was sadly mistaken about about this team. What has gone wrong? So far, it has not looked like a great prediction, David. I'll give you that. There's still plenty of track ahead of the Mariners and other teams as well. But I think there's been a number of, of issues for the Mariners. One, if you want to start, start with the pitching, the bullpen last year was elite. It was a dominant bullpen. It was truly one of the best bullpens in baseball. It was anchored by one of the best relievers in baseball in Paul Seawald. Not that Paul has been the problem by any means, but just highlighting how great he was a season ago. The bullpen had this magic ability where Scott, who has really handled the bullpen exceptionally well for a number of years now, a side note, I think Scott became maybe one of, not maybe, I believe he became one of the first managers in baseball to really say, I'm going to use my best reliever in the hottest pocket of the game. Whatever the highest leverage situation is, if that's in the sixth or the ninth, that's when I'm calling on my best reliever, which happens to be Paul Seawald. It's helpful that when Paul joined the team, he did not have a track record like a Craig Kimbrell or an Aroldis Chapman. So it made it easier for Scott to do that, certainly. Uh, but he has deployed his bullpen exceptionally well, uh, especially last year. And almost any name that he called at any point in the season and at any point in a game that he called last year delivered. It was a pretty magical year. It has not been to that same level this year. Also, the bullpen has dealt with injuries, which is very normal for a bullpen. And last year, that wasn't nearly the case like it has been this year. So the bullpen has had its issues, unlike last year. Also, from a offensive standpoint, it's kind of a head scratcher how the Mariners can get outscored by 50 runs last year and yet win 90 games. That's not an easy thing to do. The Mariners had this clutch ability that was almost unprecedented and certainly not repeatable to that level, at least. And that's not a knock on the team that is currently compiled. I think it's a more talented team. It's almost you can't dispute it. It's a more talented team in 2022 for the Mariners than it was in 2021. But the Mariners had this incredible ability just to come through in the moment seemingly every time it was needed. And as we both know, David, that's not a repeatable thing in this game. And we're seeing that this year. Mariners have dealt with some injuries to some 
really notable players this year, namely Mitch Hanniger. It sounds like Mitch will be out until maybe the mid part of the summer, however you want to define that. Let's call it July at some point. And this is somebody who obviously is an all-star, was a top 10 MVP guy last year, has a punishing bat. He's the biggest thump in the order for the Mariners. And he's missed to date what feels like the entire season. He he was healthy at one point, but one of the COVID lists. And then as soon as he came back in his first at-bat, suffered a very severe high ankle sprain and has been out ever since. So that has been disappointing. Jared Kelnick, they clearly penciled in to be at the major league level and to be productive. He is now in AAA because he was not productive. Now, Jared Kelnick is turning 22 this summer. Adley Rutschman just made his major league debut with a former number one overall pick and is 24. So anyone who's given up on Jared Kelnick, if I can be frank, is a fool. He's a highly touted prospect, a blue chip prospect for a reason. He's 22 years old. He's had turbulence in his young major league career. I think it's fair to say that this is not the player that Jared Kelnick is. He remains one of the youngest players in the majors when he's at this level. They need to get him right. They're not going to rush him back. He will spend extended time in Tacoma. There's no question about that. So you have that coupled with the Mariners went out, David, and they, they got Jesse Winker. If you look at whether you want to look at WRC Plus or OPS or whatever, any metric you want against right-handed pitching last year, I mean, it was basically Bryce Harper, Juan Soto, and Jesse Winker. Uh, Winker mashed. There's a reason why he started the All-Star game last year in the National League, and it has not been the Jesse Winker of old in a Mariners uniform. They are searching for a way to get Jesse Winker right. There are some underlying metrics that at points this year have shown that it's not as bad as it looks on the surface level. But it's been a real struggle for Winker. If they get him right, if Hanniger comes back, if when ha- I should say when Hanniger comes back, if Kelma can be something like what they believe he can be this year, and you have the other complementary pieces doing what they're doing, Ty France has played like an all-star. J.P. Crawford has been terrific. He's had an all-star first two months of the year as well. All of a sudden, offensively, this team looks a lot different. But there have been issues for the Mariners. There's no question. I think those are some of the things as to why the Mariners are in the position they are right now. On the subject of young players, I mentioned uh, Julio Rodriguez earlier. How hard would it be to get you to say nice things about Julio? <laughs> you know, it is remarkable. He's 21 years old, man. He's 21. And the things that he's doing this quickly as what the second youngest player in baseball right now i mean if you put him in the texas league right now he'd be one of the youngest players think about that and he's making it look pretty easy i think no matter what happens this year we're gonna go into the off season all of us fans broadcasters jerry depoto and we're still not going to have any idea what his ceiling is it's going to take some time to discover that which is pretty exciting he's done it all david he's done it all and he's done it with a smile He's got this incredible joy to him. I, I sometimes think of it if if I'm a if I'm a national TV partner, if I'm Fox and I'm coming in to do a Mariners game, who do I want to put the wire on? I mean, I want to put it on Julio, and there's no question about it, because he has this electrifying personality and electrifying talent in every facet, defensively, at the plate, on the base paths. He's one of the fastest players in baseball despite being built like a tight end. He's got so much charisma. You want him on every billboard. He's been remarkable. It's been such a joy to watch and for him to pick it up as quickly as he has. When we went into spring training, 
not knowing if he would make the team, knowing that he would, however, give be given every opportunity to make the club out of spring training. But it became pretty clear pretty early on that this was going to be the guy. But for people to know, there was no idea really what he would look like in center field. He was a corner guy in the minors. No one thought that he could be as fast as he is. I was talking to one of our analysts, Jesse Smith, who's a senior director of baseball analytics for the Mariners, and he was just shaking his head the other day. He was almost kicking himself, saying, I can't believe we didn't realize how fast Julio is. You know, the guys who pour over all the numbers didn't know how fast he was. And I said this to Jerry DePoto, and Jerry said, nobody knew because he got faster. He's improved his speed while getting bigger each of the last two winters, which who does that? I mean, that just doesn't happen at this level. The speed goes, the strength develops, and you mash. And that's what guys do when they get big. But Julio has been able to mash while also getting faster. He's a freak, man. He's a total freak. And it's been a blast to watch the first two months of his big league career. And you are right about the wheels, and you can see that with the eye test as well. He was flying around the bases in one of the games at Fenway, and another writer who was sitting next to me in the press box looked at me and said, man, that guy can run. <laughs> <laughs> he can definitely run. And you're right, too, about the personality. I didn't talk to uh, Julio on the record, but Manny Acta introduced me at Fenway, and we chatted for a few minutes. And yeah, just very engaging personality. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And he has uh, learned English. He has very good English, interview quality English. And he's the total package, and he, he truly does it all. And he has become one of the best players, certainly one of the best rookies in the American League, and one of the best players for the Mariners in the month of May. And it's almost to a point where in a big situation outside of Ty France, and you can add J.P. Crawford to that list, there's almost nobody you'd rather have at the plate than a kid who's 21 years old. It's remarkable. No, for sure. Uh, and we're running short on time, but I do want to uh, bring up a few other players. George Kirby got his first big league win last night. You know, again, we're speaking on uh, on Wednesday. Uh, tell me about George. George is really fascinating because, first of all, for context, he was part of a run of three straight first-round draft picks by the Mariners that were all cut from the same cloth. The Mariners went college right-handed starting pitcher back-to-back-to-back years. And we're seeing dividends of that already. The first of that run was Logan Gilbert, who was the American League Pitcher of the Month in April. He's been a stud. He's everything the Mariners hoped he would be and, and maybe even more. The next was George Kirby, 20th overall out of out of Elon, a small little college in the, the Colonial Athletic Conference, if, if I'm remembering that correctly. And then Emerson Hancock was the third. He was a top 10 pick taken out of Georgia more recently. The interesting thing about what we have seen from Kirby, when he was selected, he was a command guy, not a stuff guy. Nowadays, as you know, everybody who gets drafted in the first round is a stuff guy, right? We, we want to see the spin. We want to see the swing and miss. We want to see the strikeouts. Kirby was a 93, 94-mile-an-hour fastball that just didn't throw it into a coffee can. He, he threw it into like an espresso cup. That's how great of a command George Kirby had. If you look at his college numbers, I want to say his junior year, he walked like six batters or something. And you can almost count it on one hand. The remarkable thing about Kirby is that he has maintained the, the command, the elite level command and has added immense stuff. And the slider that he displayed in Baltimore the other night 
It was sharp. It was filthy. It was 88 miles an hour. The fastball has gone from 92 to 94 to now sitting in the 96 range, and we've seen him pop 98. So he has been able to add noticeable velocity while having a four-pitch mix, while maintaining his incredible command. It's kind of everything that you want. So he has delivered right away. I mean, we have seen it at the major league level immediately. The sky is the limit for George Kirby, and he is what they thought he was, and then some. You mentioned uh, Logan Gilbert. I just spoke to him and wrote about him uh, you know, for Fangraphs. Basically, I had Logan talk about the new changeup that he's throwing this year. And that has me thinking, Aaron, about broadcasting because Logan got into the weeds with me quite a bit about exactly what changes he made and why. From a broadcast perspective, how much of that type of information do you want to share to listeners in a broadcast? Yeah, that's a good question because it always, no matter what we're talking about, whether it's if we want to go in deep into the weeds on numbers or on a pitch grip change or whatever it might be, it is always kind of this struggle to filter it when you think about it ahead of time and then in game when you're actually delivering and conveying the message. Just how how surface level should we go? How how deep should we go? And it's a case by case situation because. You don't want to overwhelm the viewer or the listener, but you also want to convey the point properly. So there's no easy answer to that, David. But I would say, depending on what's going on in the game, finding the right time in the game to have that conversation and tell that story, whatever it might be. And then how easily can we describe this, whether it be on TV or radio, without losing people? Right. Like when you start talking about pitch grips, for example, or or if a guy's pronating his wrist or whatever it might be, some of that stuff's hard. Right. I mean, sometimes maybe if the game is slow and you can bring a camera on in the booth in game and you can have your analyst actually hold a baseball up and show a grip or show what he's doing with his wrist or whatever it might be. Like like the visual aids, most people are visual learners. That can be really helpful. Or if you're doing a telecast and you have the ability to put a graphic up that clearly shows uh, a versus B, this change compared to this year or whatever it might be, like that's really helpful. When you don't have those tools, and there are others, but if you don't use those, it can be really tricky. And you just have to find the appropriate way to strike the balance between conveying the message and not losing the message because you've gone too deep into it. And now the game is happening and you're trying to explain what you're explaining. <laughs> It's a thing that I think about almost every game because almost every game there is something like that that you want to get into and you have to choose the right spot. I think that's the most important thing. You have to choose a point in the game where it's palatable for the listener and you don't lose track of the game. It's a long-winded answer. There is no right answer to it. It's a case-by-case study, but it's definitely something I think every broadcaster thinks about almost every night. What about stats without explanation? You mentioned uh, WRC Plus earlier. Without looking it up, I'm going to assume that Ty France probably has the highest WRC Plus on the Mariners roster. Would it be feasible for you to mention when he comes up, you know, Ty France is having a great year. He has a, you know, whatever, maybe like a 170 WRC Plus. Do you think enough listeners would know what you're talking about? When it comes to the Mariners telecasts, 
I'm really proud of what we've done. It's taken some great collaboration. But a few years ago, we kind of came to the conclusion that we had to start pushing the envelope a little bit when it comes to advanced stats and metrics. The days of talking about pitcher wins and batting average, while those do have their place in baseball, we can't be continuing to broadcast those things as gospel on a nightly basis. The Mariners front office is as advanced as any. Every executive and baseball ops executive in the game is leaning on other numbers to make decisions and shape their roster. It's only right that we start to educate the fan on what those are and why they're important. Curtis Wilson is our producer on TV on Root Sports. And I, I really have to thank Curtis for getting this ball rolling. Like probably a lot of broadcasters for years at this point, I've started to kind of self-learn or self-teach when it comes to these metrics. And thanks to fan graphs, my goodness, where would we be without fan graphs when it comes to this in particular? That was my starting point. The Mariners also, I'm very grateful, are, my gosh, they're so open. Uh, I have a tremendous relationship with many of our analysts. I, I mentioned Jesse Smith already. Joel Furman is another one. He, he kind of handles more of the pitching side of things uh, for the Mariners in the front office. You know, Jerry, Jerry could not be more open about this. In fact, we have a, a podcast with Jerry. It's called The Wheelhouse Podcast. Even if you're not a Mariners fan, it's a great listen. We sit down with Jerry typically twice a month during the season. We go from anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour. And we talk about the Mariners and we talk about Mariners players, but inevitably a lot of these advanced numbers do come up and we have Jerry explain some of them from time to time, because like any director of baseball operations, any general manager, Jerry is immensely dialed into these things. So my point is, David, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but my point is it's in the air, right? It's in the air in baseball and it's especially in the air around T-Mobile Park and the Seattle Mariners. So for us, to have a broadcast that is not parallel to the front office in some ways is a disservice to the fan. So Curtis, our producer on, on TV, he came to me a couple of years ago and said, hey, I, I really want to start pushing some of these numbers. Where do you think we should go first? And we were kind of kicking around the idea of, do we go weighted on base? Do we go WOBA? Do we go WRC plus? Do we go OPS plus? And I had some talks with some of those analysts in the front office with Jerry as well, trying to find out where do you guys think we should go with this. And the number that we settled on was WRC plus, you know, none of these numbers, the acronyms of them, none of them look pretty. I mean, they all look like they're from outer space, right? WOBA, WRC plus OPS plus none of them really wash well at first glance, but we did feel like WRC plus was, among the easier things to explain. If we could get the viewer over the hurdle of what these funny letters and a math sign looked like, we felt like we could explain it well. And so in the early days, which is probably at this point, maybe three years ago, we spent some time on the pregame show. I sat down in a chair, got on camera, got some graphics, put them up there, explained why WRC plus is better than batting average, explained why it's even better the non-base percentage, explain why this accounts for ballparks like T-Mobile Park versus Coors Field versus Oracle Park, and how it's putting things in context to what the run environment is this year, and looking back to 
the juice ball versus maybe a debtor ball like we saw at the start of this season and then try to really explain to the viewer hey mariners hitters should be applauded for a double versus a single and they should be applauded for homering versus drawing a walk but if you're talking about on base percentage these things are seen equally or if you're talking about or batting average these things are seen equally a single versus a triple and so i think we spent time kind of cultivating this for a couple of years and i i feel like we've done a, a solid job with our graphics some of them are more full screen and more obtrusive and really showing the difference between this versus that some of them are more subtle lower third pop-ups where we'll show wrc plus for a hitter with extreme splits he's a 157 versus righties he's a 42 versus lefties and just kind of every night subtly bringing these into the broadcast i do believe that they have become kind of part of our vernacular now on our on our local telecasts and my hope is that viewers are less scared of this and realizing and david you know this this is your every day this is not a complicated thing it just looks different from what we've talked about for a hundred years and executives have changed Heck, even the players have changed. We hear hitters talking about how hard they're hitting the ball. And that's been our next chapter in all this journey, really using the StatCast data, using Savant every day for a prep tool and in-game as well. Our latest kind of graphic package with this is we looked up the batting average on balls that are hit at 95 miles an hour or greater or from nothing to 94 right? Or even finding pockets of the Mariners in particular, they really look at exit below at a hundred plus. I mean, they still value the hard hit ball at 95 or greater, but the juices really get flowing in, in the baseball ops office when it gets to triple digits and over. So we had a lower third pop-up graphic of essentially 95 to 99 and then a hundred plus, right? And then even 105 and greater. And the point of this is, you know, we harp, and hopefully we don't harp, that is a negative connotation, but we do emphasize the importance of hitting the ball hard and how good swing decisions lead to quality contact, quality contact leads to base hits. But what I don't want people to lose sight of is, hey, why is Goldsmith always talking about, oh, he hit it hard, he hit it hard. Why isn't he hitting it harder? Well, the reason is because this leads to knocks, this leads to run production, it leads to winning games. And so having graphic reinforcement of that, this is why we like it when Julio Rodriguez hits a line drive at 110 miles an hour because most of the time when you do that, you're an 800 hitter or whatever the number might be. So I really believe that we have incorporated some of the more advanced fan graphs type numbers, especially when it comes to rates as well. That's really easy to understand. Walk rate, strikeout rate. We have that on, a, on an every night basis. I, I'm very proud of the fact that fan graphs has become more and more embedded into our telecast in particular on a nightly basis. I hope. I believe, and I, and I hope the, the fan is better for it. No, you sound like a stat nerd, Aaron. And I, I also made note of the fact that when you listed some ballparks a little while ago, you did not mention uh, Dr. Pepper ballpark. So <laughs> I guess that's uh, that's in your past now. <laughs> I'm definitely a stat nerd. I spend, uh, I spend a, a lot of time, a lot of time every day on fan graphs and savant and baseball reference. Uh, I've got a lot of bookmark tabs. And to me, I don't try to make my broadcast stat heavy. I, I want a stat to tell a story. 
I want to bring it up in the appropriate time. I don't want to just fling numbers out there to fling numbers out there. That does nobody any good. And then it loses all punch that that number should have in the right time, in the right moment. But for me, the numbers drive the questions. It drives what I'm going to ask Scott Service the next day or what I'm going to ask Mitch Hanniger or George Kirby or Jerry DePoto. So it, it helps me either reinforce what I'm watching or debunk what I think I'm watching and prove me wrong, which I'm happy when either one of those things happen. I think it spurns great conversation in the broadcast booth if I'm on TV with Mike Flowers. Mike has Mike's an old school baseball guy, right? And he has adopted this stuff. He he speaks the language, he believes in it. And we we talk about this stuff every day at dinner, in the booth, before the game, in the game. And if we didn't, we wouldn't be speaking baseball in 2022 and beyond. So the old school baseball story is still is still king, right? I mean, people tune in for baseball because it's relaxing and they want to hear baseball conversation and they want to just hear the sounds of the ballpark. And we can't lose sight of that. But the numbers do tell a story. And when used and deployed in the right way at the right time, hopefully it helps listeners and viewers know what's going on on the field a lot better than they did 10 years ago. Because we're we're watching baseball, and in my case, broadcasting baseball in, oh my gosh, in a renaissance. I mean, this is the enlightened era. I mean, we were in the dark ages 10 years ago, and I can't imagine doing my job without these resources because, honestly, it just makes it so much more fun uh, to be able to look into these things and talk to players about it. It's one of the great thrills in my job when you see some of those numbers play out in real time right in front of you. I'm a nerd, so I think it's a blast. I try to kind of make it less nerdy and more palatable for just the common fan and hopefully make them realize that these numbers aren't scary and actually have a, a really fun place in the game. Aaron, you mentioned a great conversation a minute ago. We are well over time here, so I should thank you for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio for some great conversation. David, thanks for having me. Thank you for all you do for the game and uh, for the Sunday notes and everything else. It, it, it makes our job more enjoyable and it helps us do our job. And uh, my gosh, I would... I'm sure everyone listening to this uh, is a Fangraph member. I would urge you to become one if you're not. It's one of the truly great baseball websites, and we would not be able to have nearly as much fun watching baseball without it. So thank you to Fangraphs. No, and, and thank you again, Aaron, and thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Jason Stark and Aaron Goldsmith for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've gone and checked out those awesome new Fangraph shirts at Breaking Tea, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to hear about all the cool things we have going on at the site, such as new shirts in the store, free to your inbox every weekday. That'll do it for us this week. Take care of each other, and we'll talk to you next time.